Good morning, everyone. Looking forward to tonight. I'm expecting some hot rolls with lots of butter, is what I'm thinking. It's going to be fun. Now, this morning, we're going to finish up our study in the book of Daniel. It's kind of bittersweet. Um, it's been a challenging study, but certainly a rewarding one. Uh, I hope uh, that you found that to be true. You know, just kind of like... Uh, Brian was talking about, the Lord didn't have to give us any insight into what was happening in the future days, but he did. And uh, what a privilege to be able to look at that together. But before we get into the details of our final passage, I want to just kind of pull back the lens a little bit and look at the big picture of where we've been. Because although Daniel is a central figure in our story, he is not the main character. Because behind all the details of Daniel's life is a sovereign and holy God, a God who has determined the details of human history, every one of them, and works them together to accomplish his redemptive purpose in the world. What we're seeing is a God who is faithful to his promises like the promise to rescue a remnant from Israel, which we've seen over and over again, through whom the promised Messiah would come. Like the promise that he will rescue his people from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Like the promise that one day Jesus will return And he will gather his people together and introduce them into the inheritance of eternal life in his presence. That's what this story is about. Now, I realize there are lots of details in between those important promises, but please understand this. Every single one of those details works together to fulfill those promises. And I hope that this gives you a deep sense of joy and optimism, even in the midst of the reality of the struggles that we inevitably face. Because in the end, here's another promise. God will exchange every ounce of suffering that his children experience in this sin-cursed world for a glory that is incomparable. I think Daniel's helpful because I think a lot of times we kind of see our lives through a microscope, kind of an up close and detailed look at at our daily lives and all that is pressing in on us from the world. And we can be overwhelmed in the midst of those details with all the the challenges and and the struggles and the, the loss that we face. And through that, it's easy to lose sight of God who is in control when things look out of control. And we lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. And so Daniel's important because it's more like a telescope. It pulls back the lens and helps us see that there's a whole lot more going on than what we can see with our own eyes. But there is a God who sees it all from beginning to end. And yet, that God draws in close and he comforts us with the evidence of his sovereign care. In other words, no matter what life looks like, he's got this. 
and he's got you. That promise that we read about in Jeremiah for God's people Israel definitely applies to us. When it says that he has plans for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And when we look at the book of Daniel, we're getting a glimpse of that future hope. And it's a reminder so that we don't get lost in the details of our daily lives. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning and bring this study to a close, we want to begin by saying thank you. You didn't have to give us any of these details, but you love us. You want to comfort us. You want to assure us that you've got this. And you've got us, and that there is a plan that will come to completion, and that we will be one day in your presence, in the joy and love of spending eternity with the people of God in the presence of God to the praise and glory of your name. So thank you that we've had the privilege to look at this together. And I do pray that as we finish up, that there would still be more more that would touch our hearts, that would transform our lives, that would give us hope and encouragement. Would you draw us closer to you? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn, if you would, to Daniel chapter 11, and we will pick up where we left last. So if you would, uh, follow along with me. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Now, last week, we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes, which we know he was described earlier in this passage as a despicable person, and that he was. A man so vile towards Israel that his his life foreshadowed the coming of the Antichrist. Speaking of Antichrist, that's who's being described here, beginning in verse 36. See, everything up to this point has been fulfilled in ancient history to the letter, But here we learn about a king who is yet to come, a ruler, as he's described, who will do as he pleases, which means that he has unmatched authority in the world. You may remember from Daniel chapter 7, the beast with the ten horns, and we talked about how those ten horns represented the the ten kingdom confederacy that would at one point have dominion and rule over the earth, but then there was this little horn the Antichrist, who would rise up from among those ten and destroy three of those kings and then become ruler over the remaining seven. That's who's being described here. And because of his power, he will deny the existence of any authority other than his own. That's why Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. Because none of the rules apply to him. We see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, when he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, speaking of the return of Christ, 
Unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, there it is, that's the Antichrist, is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship as we've seen in our passage here in Daniel so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, which makes him a blasphemer. Because he's denying the existence of God. In fact, he condemns all forms of religion in any idea of a Messiah. Which is why he's called the Antichrist. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Denying the existence of, of God. Rejecting the idea of the Messiah, making himself out to be God. That's the Antichrist. Look at how it continues in verse 38. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his, father, his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold and silver and costly stones and, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of of a foreign God, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over many and will parcel out land for a price. Despite his unmatched authority, he's always establishing his dominance in the world. Being a God of fortresses means that he is a man of war. He is assembling a massive military force to conquer any dissension, to establish his rule on earth. And like Antiochus Epiphanes, we see that he rewards those who give him their allegiance. His dominance will create this massive following of people throughout the world who would rather comply than be conquered. We see that in Revelation chapter 13, Beginning verse 3 where it says, And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And let me just remind you, the beast is symbolic. It's symbolic of a person, the Antichrist. It says, They will follow after the beast. They will worship the dragon who symbolizes Satan because he gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? In other words, they would rather comply than be conquered. He's too strong. He's too mighty. And keep in mind that this compliance includes the nation of Israel. Because we know at the beginning of the tribulation, they make a treaty with this Antichrist, this world ruler, in exchange for his protection. So even though we may perceive this man to be vile and cunning, and that he was, really, he was a very cunning leader. Like Antiochus, he's a deceiver. He promises good, good and, and prosperity for those who are under his rule. I think his rule begins with a measure of peace and prosperity. There's good things that are happening. He brings order. As a world ruler, he brings efficiency through a world economy. But then over time, he brings the nations into a world war. Look at what it says in verse 40. 
At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, the Antichrist, and the king of the north will storm against him, the Antichrist, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land. Remember, that's Israel. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over the precious things of Egypt. Then the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with a great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, the mountain where the temple is. He, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, there, there's a lot of debate about what specific battles are being described here and alluded to, but the key thing here is to understand this, that there is a violent end to human history. There is a violent end to human history as this Antichrist leads the world into constant war. Verse 40 tells us it's the end time, so we know that this era is coming to, the, to a close. And much like we saw with the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, Israel becomes a battleground for the nations. That's why the Antichrist, he enters into the beautiful land and he makes it his home base, a base of operation from which he will then conduct successful campaigns to the north and to the south and to the east. He floods in, he passes through, and he takes all kinds of treasures of, of gold and, and silver. But while he's conquering in one area, there's, there's rumors of problems in another area. So he redirects his wrath, and he goes to destroy and annihilate many. We know that in time, he breaks his covenant, that peace treaty with Israel, and he turns that wrath on them threatening to destroy and annihilate the Jews. Jesus describes this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, who as ever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out of the house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So God allows this chaos to occur, but not without limits and not without purpose. At the appointed time, it will come to an end. We see that described in Revelation chapter 19, 
beginning in verse 11, and it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his hand and his head were many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and treads a winepress of fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the return of Jesus Christ, and it will happen at the appointed time, destroying the Antichrist and his armies. That's why our passage says that he will come to an end, speaking of the Antichrist, and no one will help him. You know why? No one can, because he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at how it continues in chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book of the life, of life uh, in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So in the end, we've talked about how we will see this world ruler, the Antichrist. We'll see a world economy and we'll see eventually what will develop into a world war. There will be a time of great tribulation, a time like has never been seen in the world before, we'll never see again beyond that point. We will see the promised return of Christ. And all of this leads, according to what we read in these three verses, to four things. A rescue, a resurrection, a judgment, and a reward. The angel tells Daniel, that Michael, remember we said that Michael was the, the prince who watches over the nation of Israel, that he will arise. And in the midst of the tribulation, as bad as it gets, he will preserve a remnant. But throughout all these final events, again, God has a goal in mind. We, we saw that back in verse 35 of chapter 11 when he says his goal is to refine, to purge, and to purify the nation of of Israel. And through this, he's bringing about the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Zechariah when he wrote and said in chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that, here it is, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, 
like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And I want you to know that this is the moment when they see the risen Christ and they believe. By faith, they turn from their rebellion and receive forgiveness from the one they have so long rejected. And in that moment, he welcomes them home. It's what Paul tells us. Romans chapter 11, we looked at this not too long ago in our study of Romans when he says, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery so that you will be wise in your own estimation thinking it's all about you because here's what's happening. There's a partial hardening that's happening among Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. I promise when I take away their sins. See, that's what's being described in here. Everyone written in the book of life will be rescued. But not only will there be a rescue, there'll be a resurrection. Look at verse two. It says that, that many who are asleep in the ground will awake. Some will be raised to life, everlasting life. Others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Which means this, and don't miss it. Death is not the end for anyone. Anyone. All humanity created in the image of God will exist beyond the limits of this world. But that final destiny is determined by a decision of faith either trusting in the work of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins or rejecting his sacrifice and relying instead on worldly wisdom and the opinions of men. There will be a rescue. There will be a resurrection. And there will be a judgment. We see that described in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. When it says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence, uh, excuse me, go back to verse four. We'll get to that one. Verse four. Then I saw thrones that they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And it's specifically talking about those who experienced this in the tribulation. Because it says, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are and holy is the one who has a part in this first resurrection. Over these, the, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This tells us this, this is a, the first resurrection and as we can see, not a complete resurrection. Instead, it's a resurrection of the tribulation saints who I believe are primarily Jews. 
because I'm holding on to the hope that the church is raptured before the tribulation begins. And everyone in this room hopes I'm right. Trust me. But they will be raised to new life with Christ, with the reward of reigning with Him in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And after this, after that thousand years, there will be a final judgment of both the living and the dead. We see that later in chapter 20. I was getting ahead of myself earlier, beginning in verse 11, when it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death of Hades gave up its dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The death of Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in the end, the only book that matters is the book of life. Because everyone's going to be judged. But if your name is according to the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at how it continues in verse 4 of our chapter 12. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal them up in the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two, other, two others were standing on this bank of the river and the other on the bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long? Will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and a half time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but... I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So the angel finishes up his explanation of the vision that Daniel has seen. And meanwhile, two other angels show up, and one of them asks the question, how long will these things last? 
And given what's been described here, and given that this was a message for Daniel and his people and his holy city, we know that they must be talking about this time of intense persecution during the tribulation. And the answer is a time, times, and a half time. We talked about this earlier in the book of Daniel. Is that representing a period of three and a half years? But I want you to notice the qualifier at the end of verse 7. It says, as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be complete. So really, more important than the time is the completion of God's purpose for Israel, his holy people. There will be a time when they will be shattered. And I believe that is that putting an end to their stubborn rebellion against the promised Messiah. Because remember, all that is happening is for a limited time and for a specific purpose. Verse 10 repeats that purpose that we saw back in chapter 11 when it says God's people will be purged. They will be purified. They will be refined. What it's telling us is that the wicked will be purged through their unbelief and the humble will believe and be purified. He goes on to explain the unprecedented distress that it will last 1,290 days. And it begins when the Antichrist performs the abomination of desolation, which we know happens precisely halfway through the seven-year tribulation, which means There's three and a half years left, and it is a living hell. That's why they ask, how long will this last? But he goes on and says, how blessed is he who remains another 45 days, essentially, 1,335 days. Let me be honest with you here. These are some really hard numbers. They're really confusing. I'm not quite sure exactly what they represent. The best explanation I've found is that these days represent the time for the judgment of the nations. And and here's why. We know, as we talked about, that three and a half years, according to a prophetic calendar of 360 days, is 1,260 days. But here we learn that it's 1,290, so there's extra time there. And then beyond that, it goes on to say that they are blessed who last for the 1,335 days. So what in the world are all these numbers about? Well, it's possible that this is the time that God takes for the judgment of the nations. Look at Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this may be it. But but whatever it is, we can rest assured that it has a desirable outcome. Looking beyond the numbers, we can be certain that anyone who is willing to wait on the Lord in faith, however long it takes, 
will be blessed, will be rewarded with the promise of eternal life. See, Daniel receives a similar promise there at the end of verse 13 when it says, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Which means God will fulfill his promise to Daniel as well. Why? Because he's one of God's holy people, one of the nation of Israel. And he will be included when the promises to Israel are complete. Now, as we finish up, I want us to kind of summarize the big picture of what we've learned in the book of Daniel. Because I'm convinced that we are in the last days. And let me explain why, because you probably have heard that from a lot of people. I've actually got a passage to back it up. So if you want to look at it with me, it's in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, here it is, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us very clearly, these are the last days the final chapter of God's plan of redemption in the world. But the last days of of what? Well, Jesus actually gives us that answer in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, when he says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Here it is, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We saw a similar phrase in that Romans passage, chapter 11. And hopefully you've noticed that the time of the Gentiles is essentially what a lot of the book of Daniel has been about. These are the events that are leading up to the last days in which we now live. Now, there's way too much going on on this diagram, but I want to walk you through this. All right, let's make it simple. Pay attention to the, the line right here make this work. I can't. How come? Hold on. Hold on. This is important. Oh, good. Oh, but it doesn't show up on there. That's of no use. <laughs> okay. See the, the, the highlighted line, and I want you to notice that that line is representing the times of the Gentiles, okay? If you'll look underneath or excuse me, above that line, there's the statue of Daniel chapter 2. Remember that? The head of gold, Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. Underneath that line, you will see Daniel 7 and 8, as you see the beasts that are being described, also representing those same nations. There you also see the Antichrist of Daniel 11. Now look above the statue. You see the 70 weeks or excuse me, the first part being the 69 weeks of Daniel, leading up to the coming of the Messiah when he was then cut off. And then you have the church age. And then you have, hopefully we're right, the rapture of the church, and then Daniel's 70th week. And I want you to notice how much of what we have talked about in the book of Daniel is represented in this prophetic timeline of events that are gonna occur. And if I had a marker, I would tell you that if you can see in the church age, that little circle, that oval up there, it says the church was not revealed 
to Daniel. Okay, you see where it says Daniel? It's about where we are right now. It's about where we are right now. There are some, this is a whole other study, who would look at the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and they would say that they represent the different ages of the church age, different time frames, the last one being the church of apostasy, the church of Laodicea, which many argue is where we are right now. So we truly are within the last days of the last days. And so much of what we've seen and what is yet ahead was given to us through the book of Daniel. And I hope you are amazed at how much a loving God has revealed to us because he didn't have to. But he wants us to be prepared and be assured. But let me go back to what I said in the very beginning. Daniel is an important person in the Bible and praise the Lord for him, right? But... He's not the main character. Behind all the details of Daniel's life is a sovereign and holy God. A God who has determined all the details of human history and he has worked every one of those details to accomplish his redemptive plan for the world. The book of Daniel ultimately reminds us that God is in control. Even though it may look like at all times in human history that he's not right? I mean, you could go back to the time when Babylon was the ruling empire, and I'm assured that many at that time would have said that Babylon was in control, but they weren't. I'm sure when Antiochus Epiphanes was having his way among the nation of Israel, and it looked like he might just annihilate them, it looked like he was in control, but he wasn't. If you go back to the time of Christ, the time of Paul, every indication was that Rome was in control, but they weren't. Many would look at our world today and they would say, well, it looks like Satan's in control, but he's not. Because God is in control. He always has been, and he always will be. We can have the utmost assurance of the faithfulness of our God to fulfill his promises. We can live with the hope of salvation in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will return. And until that day, we can be inwardly renewed day by day by the promised presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So as we finish up our study of Daniel, let me close. I think this is a fitting passage to finish up. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, and it says this. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And here's why. For he who promised is faithful. Amen? And because of that, let us consider how to stimulate, how to encourage one another towards love and good deeds. And don't forsake your gathering together, as is the habit of some, but come together and remind each other of the hope that is in Christ, in the things that are yet to come, and be assured of his presence in the moment. And even more as the day draws near. And here's the truth. Every day we live is one day closer to his return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, thank you for the gift of your word. I hope we see that very clearly as we look at the book of Daniel together. So much truth and goodness and value as we see you graciously give us the assurance of things that are come. Many of them, many of them have been fulfilled. Some are being fulfilled even now in this moment and then others that are yet to come, but all of them work together to accomplish your redemptive purpose in the world. And some may ask, well, why, why is he slow about coming? Why didn't he just come? And here's why. Because he's not slow, but he's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so, Lord, may we come to that place this morning, as Brian reminded us, to surrender our lives before a sovereign and holy God. Lord, we love you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Let me just remind you that even as we sing that song, man, doesn't that stir something in your heart? <laughs> to long for that day. But let me remind you that until that day comes, we're not just waiting here. There is important work to be done and things that we need to enjoy, okay? Let me give you an example. When we get together tonight for our Thanksgiving dinner, I want you to think about heaven. I want you to think about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want you to realize that God gives us pictures here on earth of things that are good and wonderful and true to remind us of something even greater yet to come. So don't miss that. When you gather with your families over the holidays, when you welcome strangers into your home, every one of those things represent the reality of what Christ has accomplished, bringing brothers and sisters together as a family of God. And we need to celebrate those times. And even during times of loss, I lost a great friend this week. But as I get older, I get more jealous and less sad <laughs> because I want to be there with him. And I am assured of where he is in this moment. So even in our loss, we can take great comfort because of the promise that they now experience that one day we will join them in. See, it, there's goodness. So don't miss that this side of heaven as we wait till we all get to heaven someday. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the privilege of this family. Just a a sample of the family of God that will gather together around the throne. When we see you face to face. And so, Lord, while we can and have the opportunity here, may we cherish, not forsaking our gathering together, may we cherish encouraging one another towards love and good deeds. May we cherish as we celebrate time that gives us a picture of the joy that it is to come. And know that this is good and that is so much better. And even in our loss, give us encouragement to know that this is not the end. And that there is a promise that will be fulfilled when we spend eternity in your presence. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day. <laughs>